Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Peter Schiff Show. Following yesterday's much stronger than expected ADP jobs report for May, you know, the consensus was for 170,000 jobs, and the actual number was 253,000 jobs. The stage was set for another strong number for today's employment report. But we didn't get it. We got the official number from the U.S. government out earlier this morning. The consensus was for 185,000 jobs being created. And we actually created, according to the government, just 138,000 jobs, a big miss. But more important, or maybe not more important, but certainly in addition to that, They took last month's 211,000 job initial report, and they lowered that down to just 174,000. And in fact, I think they made revisions to the prior month as well. The official unemployment rate, though, actually went down to 4.3. I think that is a new low for the unemployment rate. But why did the unemployment rate drop? Well, for the same reason it normally drops. Lots of people left the labor force. Labor force participation once again dropped two-tenths to 62.7. That matches the all-time record low. We actually had more than 600,000 people leave the labor force in the month of May, a new all-time record high, Americans no longer employed. In fact, breaking it down by part-time and full-time, all of the jobs, all the net new jobs that were added were part-time jobs. We actually lost 367,000 full-time jobs during the month of May. That is the biggest decline in full-time employment in three years. And of course, uh, just uh, as is normal, the jobs that we do create in leisure and hospitality, uh, education, healthcare, temporary services, stuff they, like that. Uh, when it comes to real jobs, uh, we lost a lot of information technology jobs. 
Um, we lost uh, jobs in retail trade and just small gains in wholesale trade, a little bit more than normal in manufacturing and logging, but still a tiny portion of the overall jobs in goods producing segments of the economy. So we continue to create jobs that are non-productive, which is another reason that the trade deficits continue to rise. And I will get to that in a minute. I just want to finish going over the jobs numbers. The weekly hourly earnings up just two-tenths of a percent, matching expectations on the lower end, but still weak. But they went back to last month's, which was originally reported as up 0.3, and they moved that down to up 0.2. So earnings are not growing. Full-time jobs are disappearing. And, you know, this economy is weakening. In fact, also yesterday, Challenger Job Cuts Report announced layoffs surged in the month of May from 36,602 in April to 51,692 in May. This is the highest number of announced layoffs of any month of the year. Uh, So that doesn't bode well for future job creation if all of a sudden we're getting a spike in layoffs. Also, in addition to the bad jobs report that came out today, which of course is going to weigh on GDP in the second quarter, we got the trade deficit for April, which is the first month of the second quarter, and they were looking for a deficit of $46.1 $46.1 billion. Instead, the deficit ballooned all the way up to $47.6 billion from what was originally reported as $43.7 billion in March. They revised that up to $45.3 billion. So this is going to take away not only from Q2 GDP, but it's going to go back and take away from Q1 GDP. Now remember, in my last podcast, I pointed out that the Federal Reserve, specifically in their minutes, said that before they raise rates again, they want confirmation that the weak economic data from Q1 was transitory. Meanwhile, all of the data that has come out since those minutes were released actually proves the opposite, that The economy is weakening. I mean, I think there's a very good chance that Q2 is going to be weaker than Q1, which obviously means Q1 wasn't transitory, but it was the beginning of a trend. In fact, the Atlanta Fed, which just yesterday increased their estimates for Q2 GDP to 4%, laughably, had to go back and slash it today, a day later, and they moved it down to 3.4%. But this is still pie in the sky. You know, the New York Fed, which hasn't even adjusted their estimate based on these weak jobs numbers and the bigger trade deficits, the New York Fed, I think, is at about 2.2 for Q2. And I think the next time they revise it, they're going to be revising it into the ones. And, of course, uh, the Atlanta Fed will ultimately catch up and probably uh, even surpass the New York Fed ultimately uh, on their estimates, because this is what the Atlanta Fed does. I mean, they start way up high, and then as the data comes in, they constantly you know, play the uh, GDP limbo as they lower and lower the bar on what's actually being expected. So if the Fed ignores all this and raises interest rates anyway— In a couple of weeks, because the probability 
of a June rate hike did not really diminish at all as a result of this much weaker than expected economic data, both on employment and trade that came out today. So, I mean, why is the Fed even saying this stuff if it doesn't mean it? I mean, I think the Federal Reserve is clearly afraid to admit that it's wrong, afraid to acknowledge how much it's overestimated the strength of GDP, afraid to admit that based on its own criteria, the rate hikes were a mistake. Because, look, if we're going back into recession, then clearly the Fed shouldn't have raised rates based on their Keynesian view of the world. In fact, I'm confident that when we go back into recession, the only criticism that the Fed is going to have is that it raised rates too quickly. I mean, believe it or not, as slowly as it raised them, they're not going to be criticized for having lowered them to zero in the first place and having them left them there too long. The main criticism is going to be, hey, you took away the stimulus too soon, right? You should have left the the alcohol in the punch bowl longer. You prematurely took it away. I mean, that's what guys like Paul Krugman are going to say. And they're going to say, you know, we just didn't have a big enough dose of stimulus. And that, you know, is what everybody is going to embrace because ultimately the Republicans and the Democrats are going to come together in their desire to stimulate the economy with an old-fashioned Keynesian-style pump priming, because that's what Donald Trump says he wants to do, and that's what we know the Democrats in Congress want to do. The Republicans, of course, in Congress are going to embrace it, too. Deficits be damned. And we're going to have the budget deficits skyrocketing. We're going to have the trade deficits skyrocketing. And what does that mean for the dollar? It's going to be nosediving. In fact, the U.S. dollar index closed at a new low for the year today, solidly below 97. We closed at 96.67. No real support. I think the key level is 92, which is the low from, I think, May of last year. But once we break through that, and I think there'll be some support around that level, but once we break through 92, we're making a beeline for 80. And that is a pretty, pretty big drop. And I think that can happen in a short period of time. But of course, 80 is not the bottom because 70 on the dollar index, that was the low in uh, summer of 2008. But then, you know, the dollar got saved by the bell, by the financial crisis. Ain't going to happen again. The next crisis is the dollar. So we're going to take out 70. We're going to go to 60. And then when we're below 60, I think is when we're going to have a crisis. Now, who knows where gold is going to be by then? I think gold is going to be much, much higher. Gold was up a little over 13 bucks today. Not quite a new high for the year, but we're close. We're probably within 10 bucks of a high for the year. Closed, I think, at just under 12.79. Gold stocks, though, continue to be weak. You know, they've been selling off almost every day on the close. I mean, regardless of what gold does, these gold stocks, in fact, I looked at gold prices, I think are up about 5%, a little bit more. And during the time period, the last 5% move up in the price of gold produced a 1% decline in the GDXJ. So junior gold mining stocks have fallen 1% as the price of gold has risen by 5%. I mean, that rarely happens that you see that big a divergence. Now, as I said before, I don't think this time it is portending a correction in the price of gold. The correction in the price of gold already ended 
what this portends is an even bigger rally because the gold speculators are still not buying this rally. They're still getting ready for the rate hike that's going to come in June. Well, when the Fed raises rates in June, if they raise rates in June, gold's going to take off. If they don't raise rates in June, then it's going to explode even higher. And of course, you know, you're going to see an even bigger move in the gold stocks. But, you know, it's also possible that if the Fed raises rates in June, it might find some way of letting the markets know that it's kind of on hold, that the next rate hike is not in the cards anymore because so far the data has come out weak and they need to take a, a, a step backwards and they need to, you know, let the data come in. I don't know. You know, maybe they'll try to find a way to save face and blame it, you know, on the uncertainty surrounding Donald Trump. And, you know, whether or not we're going to have tax cuts or whether or not we're going to have repeal of Obamacare. You know, I'm starting to read a lot of articles now that the economy is slowing down because businessmen don't want to make decisions until they know what the new taxes are. So because they think there may be some tax cuts, but they're not really sure what they're going to be, they're kind of sitting on their hands. They don't want to make any decisions until they know what the new rules of the game are going to be because they don't want to screw up and do something that maybe the new tax code would would punish or they they want to make sure that they do the right thing and so they're doing nothing and so all this uncertainty over whether or not we're going to have tax cuts and the form of the tax cuts, that this is actually weak in the economy. And I can see the media kind of using that as a way to blame the, the weakness on, on Donald Trump. And, you know, the Fed, too, may, may say the same thing, that this, this uncertainty that has been introduced is weighing on confidence, weighing on businesses. Of course, one thing it's not weighing on is the stock market. You know, the stock market continues to go up. Uh, the Nasdaq being the biggest mover. I mean, the S&P 500 and the Dow, sure, they're continuing to rise very slowly, but the Nasdaq, you know, up about another one full percent today, although the S&P actually did make a new uh, high for the year, up about 0.37, 37 basis points. The Dow did make a new high, up 0.29 of a percent, so even less than the S&P at 21,206. But the composite is the star continuing to be pulled higher by just a handful of large cap stocks. NASDAQ now closing over 6,300 for the first time. New intraday high, 6,308 spot 76. We close at 6,305 uh, spot 8. Stocks like Amazon leading the way, closing over 1,000. I think this is the first time it's closed above 1,000. Uh, 1,006. Point seventy three. I'm not sure. Maybe Jeff Bezos is now the richest man in the world. I'm not sure yet. I mean, let me check what happened to Microsoft. Although Bill Gates's position in Microsoft is smaller than um, Jeff Bezos' position uh, in, in Amazon. But yeah, Microsoft up again, though, up 2.38%. New 52-week high for Microsoft. So not looking too shabby there for for Bill Gates. But, you know, look at what's happening. Brick and mortar, the uh, debacle du jour, restoration hardware down better than 25% today alone on bad earnings. You know, I was on the CNBC, uh, you know, dot com, the Futures Now show yesterday. And again, they tried the same old nonsense when I pointed out the weakness in the economy, and I pointed to retail sales, they're trying to say, but no, that's not true because everybody is shopping at Amazon. Sure, people are shopping at Amazon, but the gains that Amazon is racking up 
are eclipsed by the losses of the brick and mortar. It's not like it's a one for one transition, right? The 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 sales that are being uh, destroyed in the bricks and mortars are bigger number than what is being picked up at Amazon. And again, I think one of the reasons that so many people are shopping at Amazon is because price is so important, because they have so little money, because they have low-paying jobs or they don't have jobs at all, that when they buy something, they have to make damn sure that they're getting the absolute rock-bottom price. And if they have to wait a few days for the package to arrive in the mail, well, that's what they have to do. You know, even though they may prefer to just go and get it and have it right away, they can't afford that. Uh, so they're, they're they're buying it cheaper on the Internet. So it's more of a sign of the slowing economy, because I do think that a lot of consumers actually like uh, shopping and going to the store and going to the mall, uh, but they can't afford it. You know, they have to they have to they have to buy stuff on Amazon. But it's just another excuse that people can use to rationalize it, just like the dropping labor force participation rate. Yeah, they all like to pretend it's all about the baby boom retiring when the evidence is the baby boom is too broke to retire. And the real collapse in labor force participation are people in their 20s and 30s. These are the people that are leaving the labor force or they're never even joining the labor force. They just go from college to their parents' basement you know, and they, they don't pass go. They don't collect $200. I mean, that's it. You know, and now some of them, maybe they, they go on to graduate school and they just, you know, take on more and more debt. You know, I guess you figure, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? I mean, once you have all this debt, you might as well take on more and more and more, right? Because then when they, you know, when they do some kind of college debt forgiveness, probably the more debt you have, uh, the more likely it is that it's going to be forgiven, and uh, so you might as well rack up as many degrees as you can if they're not going to cost you anything. That's uh, that's part of the moral hazard of this whole uh, situation. Now, I'm not really sure how much economic data is going to be released between now and the FOMC meeting in less than two weeks. You know, we have all the data next week. And then on Tuesday, June 13th, is the FOMC meeting. And then the following day on Wednesday is their announcement and their uh, conference, their press conference. And the Fed is going to raise rates and explain why they did so in the face of all this weak economic data. I mean, my bet would be that the data that we get, and there's not that much that's going to come out between now and then, but my guess is it's going to be weaker than expected. I think the dollar will fall between now and that meeting. The price of gold will rise between now and that meeting. Look at what's happening to bond prices. We had a big drop in bond yields today. The yield on the 30-year the dropping all the way down to 2.81. On the 10-year, dropped down to 2.159. These are big drops in the bonds. It doesn't sound like or it doesn't look like the bond market is getting ready for the Fed to keep tightening when you're seeing long-term interest rates falling like this. In fact, long-term interest rates now are at a new low for the year. Now, we haven't surrendered the entire increase that we got since Donald Trump was elected, which is what's happened to the dollar, right? The dollar has surrendered 100% of the gains since Trump was elected, right? We're actually lower now than it was before people went to the polls and voted for Trump. Now, that's not the case with interest rates. Long-term interest rates are still higher based on the idea that we were going to get all this growth. But looking at this bond chart, I mean, we'll see. I mean, these bonds can continue to fall as people start to realize that the growth's not going to materialize 
and neither may the future rate hikes. And if the Fed does raise rates in two weeks or less than two weeks, there's a good chance that that's it, that that is the very last rate hike of this cycle, which means, you know, all the Fed was able to do was get rates back to 1%. Because right now, the Fed funds rate is target between 0.75 and 1. So if they raise them again, then they're going to raise it from 1 to 1 and a quarter. That's basically the lowest point they got to under Alan Greenspan. And that was the rate that gave us the housing bubble that resulted in the 2008 financial crisis. And there's an old, you know, uh, chartist that what used to be support becomes resistance. So if 1% was the old low and how low that we could get rates, it stands to reason that 1% could be the new high. So what was the low end of the old range is now the high end of the new range. Now, what is the low end of this new range? We don't know because the last time the Fed stopped at zero, this time they're going to go negative. They're going to try to go through the floor and go below zero. But we know the one thing that they're going to have to do bigger than anything is QE, right? You're talking go, go big or go home. Well, that's exactly what the Fed is going to have to do when it comes to QE4. And it's not just going to be QE4. It's going to be monetary and fiscal stimulus. Because remember, the last time we never got the fiscal stimulus. We had divided government. Remember, it was all, you know, the Fed has to carry the burden on its own. We can't get the House and the president, you know, to come together, Congress and the White House. So, you know, the, the Fed has to do all the heavy lifting. It's just, you know, we're just operating on one leg of this policy. Well, next time, it's not going to be just monetary policy. We're going to have a double barrel of Keynesian toxic uh, medicine in the form of tax, tax, spending hikes. So we're going to have fiscal stimulus. We're going to have monetary stimulus. And remember, the only thing this stimulates is inflation. It screws up the economy. It is a sedative for the economy. It's going to produce an even weaker phony recovery than the one we just lived through. In fact, I read this statistics, and I, I saw this again last week, but I read the article again. I was on Zero Hedge today. And the article mentioned that if you go back to the 10 years of the Great Depression, right, of the 30s, and the 1930s is this decade that we all think of as the Great Depression. So if you go for the 10 years, 1930 through 1939, and you compare that to the last 10 years, the growth rate happens to be exactly the same. It's like 1.3%. Now, obviously, we had more volatility. We had highs and lows in the 30s, right? Big ups, big downs. But if you smooth it out, the average rate of growth for the economy during the Great Depression was the exact same average rate of growth that we had over the last 10 years. I mean, yet they're telling us this is a great economy. Well, statistically, it looks just like the Great Depression, if you look at the net effect. But here's a significant difference. We had to borrow $10 trillion, more than $10 trillion, to generate this anemic economic growth. We borrowed a lot more in the last 10 years than we did during the Great Depression. So what's going to happen next? I mean, the U.S. economy is in much worse shape today than it was in 1939. I mean, we had a strong economy in 1939. I mean, we, we, we were getting ready to fight World War II, and we paid for it. I mean, we didn't have to borrow any money from, from our enemies. We financed it. Now, the government had to borrow money, but they borrowed it from the American people who were flush with cash. 
Americans had all kinds of savings to buy up these war bonds. And of course, we, we were an industrial powerhouse. Our factories were able to start producing military equipment so that we could uh, supply the troops, so that we could win that war. That's how strong the U.S. economy was in 1939. I mean, we, we're a basket case today. I mean, we're completely broke. We have all this debt, and we just went through a 10-year period of economic growth that equals the Great Depression, yet supposedly we just had one of the longest recoveries in post-war history. Well, imagine what we've just set ourselves up for. Imagine if you, know, if you thought that recovery was weak, that Obama recovery, if you thought that was weak, where do you get a load of the recession that we're going to have under Trump? And of course, it's not Trump's fault. In fact, Trump did a good thing this week by getting us out of that ridiculous Paris agreement. He's taken a lot of flack for it, but we never should have got into that agreement. And it's a good thing that he got us out of it. But, you know, it's it's not going to change the course that we're on. But of course, you know, they could say, oh, this we're, the economy is in trouble because of that. They could say, well, we abdicated our global leadership. And I mean, who knows? I mean, whatever Trump does, that's going to be the reason that the economy is going to collapse. They're not going to point to all the bad things that happened before he became president. They're not going to talk about all the mistakes that Obama made. They're not going to talk about all the mistakes uh, that Yellen made or Bernanke made. It's going to be, oh, we got out of the Paris Accord or whatever it is, or Trump created all this uncertainty over what the tax rates are going to be. He is the fall guy, and we're going to fall damn hard. And, you know, that's why, again, I wish that Donald Trump had come out right away and said, this economy is a disaster. It's going to fall apart. This is a bubble. It's going to pop. It's going to be painful. We got to endure it. We got to do the right thing. But that's not what he did. He embraced it. He he prepared everybody for things are going to get better. You know, it's going to be uh, no pain, all gain. And, you know, he's now he's set himself up for a fall. It's unfortunate. And I've been warning about this. You know, look out for the midterm elections, which could be a sweep for the Democrats. Look out for 2020, which could be Bernie Sanders or, you know, somebody to the left of Bernie Sanders. Hard to imagine that you can get to the left of Bernie Sanders. But, hey, this economy is going to be so bad by then. But meanwhile, the investment landscape Gold is still a bargain. I mean, it's still below 1300 These gold stocks are on sale. You know, I guess I got to mention one more time these cryptocurrencies. You know, I guess I'm going to risk a few more thumbs down uh, as people want to make fun of me because I've been calling them a bubble and the price keeps going up. But remember, you don't disprove my theory that it's a bubble based on the bubble getting bigger, right? But I want to point out, you know, Bitcoin uh, used to be about, I don't know, a couple years ago. Bitcoin was like 95% of the market cap of all the cryptocurrencies. Now, about a year ago, it was down to about 90%. I think when the year, when this year started, I don't know, maybe it was around 85%, something like that. A month ago or so, it was still about 80%. It's now down to 45%. This is the lowest it is. In fact, it's, it's slightly below 45%. So Bitcoin is losing market share. You've got now, there are seven digital currencies, seven that have market caps in excess of $1 billion. The top three being Ripple, which is now $11.6 I mean, take a look at a chart of Ripple. You know, anyone who's been talking about Bitcoin, Bitcoin's been standing still compared to Ripple these last few weeks. So Ripple is at $11.6 uh, And of course, uh, Ethereum, that came out of nowhere to be number two. I mean, that thing's been gaining, but it's over $20 billion in market cap. But there are seven of them that have market caps of over a billion. And then, you know, you have to go down through, I'm looking through a list here. 
The top 34 have market caps in excess of $100 million. 34 cryptocurrencies that are worth more than $100 million. Now, there's about 800 of these cryptocurrencies total, 800 of them. Remember, I've been talking about the fact that even though the supply of Bitcoin is finite, the supply of competing currencies is not. It's infinite. There are no barriers to entry. Anybody could launch a cryptocurrency, and everybody will as long as the bubble keeps inflating. So that is ultimately the biggest problem. The inflation in cryptocurrencies is enormous, right? They just keep creating them out of thin air. Now, I know there are these people that think, well, Bitcoin was first. Who cares if it's first? I mean, is the first always the best? I don't think so. I mean, how do you know what digital currencies somebody might create? Let's assume that these digital currencies don't implode completely, right? Let's assume that they actually work, right? I'll, let's just say, yeah, I'm wrong and they work. Well, don't you think more and more of them are going to be created if they work so well? What's the odds that the first one is the best one? I mean, is the first computer the best computer? I mean, come on. How many computers? Is the first cell phone, is Gordon Gecko's cell phone better than the cell phones we have today? The first, when it comes to technology, is never the best. People always come up with better ones, faster ones, simpler ones. So if Bitcoin works... Whatever they create, whatever cryptocurrency somebody creates next year, the year after that, five years from now, is going to be even better. So what are your Bitcoins going to be worth? I mean, what is your cell phone? If you bought a cell phone, you know, the first cell phone, you know, what's it worth today? I mean, nothing. I mean, maybe if you never used it, maybe it's a collector's item. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, so what is what is Bitcoin going to be? Just an artifact in some museum? Hey, this was the first cryptocurrency. Ah, look at it. Bitcoin, look how cute it is, you know, because obviously the newer ones will be better and faster and, and, and more, you know, they'll have more utility than Bitcoin. Bitcoin might have been the pioneer that proved the concept, but then other ones are going to come and improve on it, build better mousetraps, and those will be the digital currencies that people use. Now, again, I still believe none of these currencies are going to work unless they're backed by something real. That, that, that's the only way they can work. Again, who uses Bitcoin now? Speculators, right? People buy Bitcoin in any one of these 800 uh, other digital currencies, and pretty soon there'll be 1,000 of them, right? People buy them as a speculative asset. Now, the only real use in commerce for these is criminals, right? Let's say I want to... Um, I want to extort a company. I say, look, I'm going to screw up your website unless you pay me, you know, $10,000. I don't ask for $10,000. I ask for $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. Why? Because it's anonymous, right? This is great. Bitcoin is great if you're a criminal and you want something anonymous. You don't have to worry about, you know, the, the Bitcoin losing value. You know, what if I extort somebody and I say, give me $10,000 worth of Bitcoin and they pay me the Bitcoin, but the Bitcoin drops by 20%. And by the time I unload my Bitcoin, I only have $8,000 instead of $10,000. I don't care. I got $8,000 clean. You know, I mean, whenever you steal money and you have to launder it, right, there's a price to be paid to launder money. I mean, if you want dirty money to be cleaned up, the people that do the laundering for you, they want to get paid a lot of money. Why? Because they risk going to jail. 
They're doing something illegal. When you want somebody to do something that's illegal, you have to pay a lot more money than if you want somebody to do something legal. So people who are transacting illegally are fine using Bitcoin. They don't care if the price really drops because it's cheap compared to having to launder cash. So, But if you're a merchant, you can't use a currency as volatile as Bitcoin when you actually have a cost of goods sold and you have a small margin. I mean, you, you're in the business of selling products, not speculating on Bitcoin. But it works now in the black market, which is another reason that governments will crack down to it, because there, there is a lot of appeal there for illegal transactions. But when it comes to legal transactions in the real world, nobody is using these currencies. Yeah, they make a big deal about uh, businesses that accept them. They don't accept them. They just make it easier for people who have them to sell them using a company BitPay to sell their Bitcoins or whatever digital currencies they have and get actual cash. And it's the actual cash that the merchants accept, not the cryptocurrency. To the extent that there is a merchant out there, and I'm sure there's a few small merchants that will actually take these cryptocurrencies, it's because they want to speculate in them. And they're not really acting as a merchant but a cryptocurrency speculator, and they're just trying to accumulate cryptocurrencies by selling their products as opposed to taking money and buying them in the market. But that's fine, but just realize that that is the, the business that they are in.